Hello and welcome to Voicebox, KALW's weekly series dedicated to exploring the art of the human voice. I'm your host, Chloe Veltman, and it's a great pleasure to be here with you tonight. A bunch of years ago, when I first started reviewing theatre productions, I was sent to write about a staging of a 1933 Jerome Kern and Otto Harbach musical called Roberta. I'd never heard of the musical before, so I was surprised to discover that I knew several of the songs in it, including this one. Ask me how I knew my true love was true. If you've just joined us, welcome. You're tuned into a voice box on KLW. We just heard Smoke Gets In Your Eyes, a song written by Jerome Kern and Otto Harbach. The song comes from the 1933 musical Roberta, but unless you're a musical theatre buff, you might not know that. I, for one, am much more familiar with the version we just heard, recorded in 1958 by the doo-wop group The Platters. Possibly the most famous take on the song, it became a number one hit on the US Billboard Hot 100 and reached number three on the R&B charts in 1959. The fact is that quite a bit of our pop music here in the Western world originated on the musical theatre stage, but few of us are aware of that fact. Louis Armstrong did not in fact write Hello Dolly, Jerry Herman did for a 1964 musical of the same name, but it was Armstrong that made the song famous. It was his version that was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2001. And I'm sorry to inform you rap fans out there that Jay-Z isn't the source of hard knock life, though many people under the age of 30 probably think the hip-hop artist penned the catchy tune himself. The song actually comes from the 1977 musical Annie, with music by Charles Strauss and lyrics by Martin Charles. In. What this suggests is that show tunes are among the best written and most versatile of songs out there. Yet over the decades, the trajectory of show tunes from the Broadway stage to the pop charts has been one of ups and downs, to put it mildly. They've gone from hip to square and back again. With me in the studio tonight to discuss how show tunes that cross over into the world of pop is performing arts writer and musical theatre aficionado Chad Jones. Hi, Chad. Hello, Chloe. Good to see you again. Happy to be here talking about show tunes. I know, it's your favourite topic. (laughs) Chad, how can it be that a musical like Roberta can mostly be forgotten today when it's the source of so many famous songs? Not just Smoke Gets In Your Eyes, but also Let's Begin, You're Devastating, Something Had To Happen and The Touch Of Your Hand. I, I attribute it to smart producers in the 1950s and early 60s realizing what a gold mine musical theater is for great songs and that with a little reinterpretation some imaginative orchestration and arranging you can turn it into a pop gem without you know all that much work so Um, the version of smoke gets in your eyes that we just heard by the platters came out in 1958 it seems the 50s and early 60s were a particularly fertile period for show tunes getting a second life in the pop world why is that I think a lot of it had to do with the music industry itself because there was such a post-war boom in hi-fi record sales. You know, the Capitol Records Tower in Hollywood was just churning out all kinds of music. And it was the era of 
crooners like Frank Sinatra and Rosemary Clooney and Peggy Lee and Ella Fitzgerald and all of these fantastic singers who just made album after album after album and were always in need of good material. They had their own songwriters. They had uh, in-house songwriters working at the big record companies, but they always needed material. So they turned quite often to the Great American Songbook, which at that time was inseparable from the Broadway stage because the Gershwins, the um, Rodgers and Hearts, the Rodgers and Hammersteins, uh, Cole Porters, Irving Berlins were all writing for Broadway first. They all eventually wrote for Hollywood somewhat too, but the stage was first. And that, that was full of great song after great song. You didn't have to look far to find a, a wonderful song to record. So what did pop artists do to redefine songs from musicals during that period? I think the smartest thing they could do, or that the, the really good ones did, was work with the best arrangers there were. You know, And I used Capitol Records as an example. They had in-house, they had as arrangers Nelson Riddle, they had Billy May, they had Gordon Jenkins, um, all of whom had a distinct style. They had a vast musical knowledge. Uh, they could bridge a lot of different kinds of styles. They were very adaptable to the artists. And I think the artists themselves had certain personalities. You know, a Nat King Cole and a Frank Sinatra had brought a different uh, vocal warmth and personality and sense of rhythm and style to anything they did. And that had to be reflected in the arrangement. And so the artist working in tandem with the arranger put a personal stamp on it. And that really is all you need to do. It's a great place to start. Any bells and whistles you want with the arrangement, you can put on top of that. But it has to start with the artist and the artist's personality coming through in the song. Was it the artists, the vocal artists, or uh, or the arrangers that tended to go and find this source material for musicals? You know, I don't know exactly how it worked back in the day, but um, they had record companies had a lot of had A and R guys, artists and repertoire um, executives essentially, and it was their job to find the material and just stockpile as much as they could because it really was an industry. They were cranking it out, um, you know, three and four albums a year, I think, to be modest about it. It was they were busy in those recording studios and they needed everything they could get their hands on. Let's listen now to a few examples of songs from the era, the golden age of the show tune crossover. First up, we'll hear the crooner Mel Torme with his swinging rendition of Too Close for Comfort from the 1956 musical Mr. Wonderful. And then we'll hear Miss Peggy Lee with her playful take on a number from the 1955 musical Damn Yankees entitled Heart. Be wise, be fair, be sure, be there, behave, beware. Be wise, be smart, behave, my heart. Don't upset your cart when she's so close. Be soft, be sweet, but be discreet. Should start. You gotta have hope. Corazón. 
luck is batting zero Get your chin up off the floor Mr. You can be a hero This is Voicebox with Chloe Veltman. On tonight's show here on KALW, theatre writer Chad Jones is with me in the studio for a discussion about how some versatile show tunes go on to experience a second life in the world of pop music. We just heard two liberal adaptations of show tunes by pop artists dating from the 1950s to early 60s. The first track was Mel Torme with Too Close for Comfort from his Swings Schubert Alley album. The track originated in the 1956 musical Mr. Wonderful. And then we heard Peggy Lee with Heart, a song that comes from the 1955 musical Damn Yankees. The track appears on Lee's album Latin a la Lee. Chad, what makes these two tracks so successful as pop tunes, do you think? Well, I think they have distinctive personality. You don't have to know or care where they come from because they're so entertaining, they're fun. Both of them are playful. Um, Pop music could be playful then. It's not so playful now, but, you know, it goes through phases. And you could swing and have fun, create a sense, a mood of being kind of carefree and hip and swinging. And I think the Mel Torme really does that. But he doesn't sound, he's not swinging hard. He's swinging, you know, in kind of the velvet fog mellow kind of way with kind of a an aggressive horn section. And he's, you know, it's um, it sounds like a Mel Torme song and you kind of smile and you kind of have to snap along and move some part of your body. And the Peggy Lee is, you know, a perfect accompaniment to a a martini or a Manhattan. You know, it was the era of cocktail parties, and that was the soundtrack for the time. And it sounds exactly like what you might want to hear while you're swilling, you know, vodka from a very nicely appointed glass. (laughs) It's amazing to see the degree to which Mel Torme and Peggy Lee took those show tunes and made them their own. And I thought it would be fun to play a snippet from a Broadway cast recording of Damn Yankees just to see how much fun Peggy Lee has with her version. So let's hear now the track that we just heard, but as performed by the 1994 Broadway cast. Is batting zero. Get your chin up off the floor. This is Voice Box, and that was a snippet from the 1994 Broadway cast recording of Heart from the 1955 musical Damn Yankees. As you can hear, the Broadway original is very different to the version that Peggy Lee created for her Latin a la Lee album in 1960, which we heard a few minutes ago. No use of the uh, word corazon. I know, it's not nearly as much fun without the uh, Spanish background singers. I agree with you. On tonight's show, I'm exploring how show tunes get a second life in the pop music world with musical theatre expert Chad Jones. Chad, let's move on now to talking about Bobby Darin. The two-time Grammy Award-winning American singer helped to popularise a number of great show tunes, didn't he? Can you tell us about Darren's most brilliant show tune adaptations for the pop charts? Absolutely. This is one of the reasons I love 
this realm of the show tune, the crossover, that middle ground between the stage and the top 10, if you will, is I find myself having to defend my love of the show tune. Sometimes people roll their eyes or like, oh, Broadway or, you know, something along the lines of, oh, how stereotypical. But uh, I take that as a challenge. I want people to know how good this music is, how good it can be. And this is one of the examples I use. I use Bobby Darren a lot because I love Bobby Darren. Uh, to begin with, he was just so versatile and had so much personality and was such an interesting um, man and singer. Uh, and he and his producers always chose really interesting songs, not always, mostly interesting songs. And when they dipped into the Broadway songbook, they chose really well. Um, he, they reached back to another um, early 20th century operetta for um, Softly, as in an Early Morning Sunrise, I believe is the name of the song. You'd never know. It was from that era. Um, they did uh, a hard swing version of a song from a musical called Tenderloin called Artificial Flowers about a little orphan girl freezing to death. Um, but you'd never know it because it sounds so fun and aggressive and you just got to snap your fingers. Uh, and <laughs> sounds really strange. It's great. Uh, and, 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 you know, his greatest accomplishment and I, one of the great uh, Broadway crossover songs Ever is uh, Mac the Knife, which if you've heard the original from Brecht Vile's Three Penny Opera, it is a it's a dirge. It's a dark, foreboding song about this very scary character named Mac Heath, um, who routinely kills people for um, various monetary reasons and gets away with it, and um, is loved by the ladies you know, of a certain ilk. And you hear Bobby Darren's version. And you think Mac the Knife is this hero. All the words are pretty much the same. You're using Mark Blitzstein's uh, translation of the lyrics, but it's a transformed song, but it's really the same song. And this is a great example of a great arranger, Richard West, and a singer merging uh, their styles to create something totally new based on something old people i mean louis armstrong recorded it as well but he sort of took it part of the way darren and west took it all the way well let's listen now to an example of bobby darren's artistry this particular example in fact here's mac the knife from 1959 which comes from the kurt Weill and bertolt brecht 1928 musical play the three penny opera oh the shark babe has such teeth dear and it shows them Pearly white Just a jackknife Has old Maggie Heath, babe And it keeps it Out of sight You know when that shark bites With his teeth, babe Scarlet billows Start to spread Fancy gloves, though Where's old Maggie Heath? Cleaner Bobby Darren with his version of Mac the Knife from Kurt Weill and Bertolt Brecht's musical play The Thrippany Opera of 1928. On tonight's show, musical theatre expert Chad Jones is with me for a discussion about how show tunes have fared over the decades in the world of pop music. That song is really remarkable. I mean, there's something about the smoothness of the voice and the swing to it that makes you forget almost that he's talking about a murderer. 
And yet when you remember, it's extremely sinister. It's really sinister, but sinister has never felt so good as it does in that. And it's got such a irresistible build up that song and it starts off kind of a slow swing and then by the end the horns are just blaring and you know the ladies are lining up for him and then Darren is just in top vocal form by the end and then those notes I think are massacred nightly in karaoke bars across the land (laughs) well that's a testament to the fact that the song is at least achieved a lot of popularity and probably as a result of Darren's oh absolutely that's when people know that song they know his version so besides the fact that pop artists took show tunes beyond the footlights, were audiences in the middle of the last century on the whole more familiar with songs from the musical theatre stage than they are now? What was the appetite back then for musicals on the whole in comparison to what it's like today? Well, I think the appetite was generally greater just because it was a, a more ingrained part of pop culture. It was where a lot of uh, songs and interest um, lived just for for several decades and where people got used to looking for um, new forms of entertainment because the Broadway shows became movies. They would see the artists on the Ed Sullivan show on Sunday nights, for example, Um, and then the songs they got to know in the hit parade, although they didn't necessarily know they were from musicals. Uh, I think the top 40 and... Broadway were so interchangeable for a while that it just didn't matter. People would assume it was from a show or a movie um, or it was just from the album that they bought and really liked. Um, My parents grew up very far away from any live theater stage and knew a lot of these songs in the 50s and early 60s because they were listening to the radio. You're listening to Voice Box on KALW 91.7 FM San Francisco. There were bells on a hill But I never heard them ringing No, I never heard them at all Till there was you There were birds in the sky But I never saw them winging No, I never saw them at all Till there was you Then there was music and wonderful roses. We just heard the Beatles performing Till There Was You, a song that started life in the 1957 musical play The Music Man by Meredith Wilson. Chad, I had no idea that the Beatles recorded a version of a musical theatre song, and such a sincere one at that. What impact did the arrival of the Beatles and the so-called British invasion of UK rock bands have on the relationship between Broadway and the pop charts? Well, it's kind of ironic, Chloe, that they recorded a, a show tune because they helped destroy Broadway. No, they didn't. But they, they <laughs> melodramatic. ushered in, you know, th- everything changes and it all goes in cycles. And frankly, that whole cycle of popular song coming from Broadway musicals was in for a change anyway and it certainly started to happen with the advent of rock and roll and Elvis and then the arrival of the Beatles changed it dramatically the British invasion changed popular music and they were the music industry was no longer looking to Broadway for hit songs because these artists were generally writing their own So Till There Was You appeared on the Beatles' 1964 US release, Meet the Beatles, and it's the only show tune that the quartet ever recorded, right? But why didn't the Beatles go on to look to musicals for further inspiration? You know, wouldn't it be great if they had? Um, I would love to hear Paul's take on MAME. 
but they were writing their own songs and you know, this this they recorded covers very early on um, in their first couple of albums and it's not at all surprising because they came into their own as artists and as songwriters so you know if anything they should have written their own Broadway show right I mean I suppose perhaps another question is why did they even pick that song I mean of all the musical songs they could have picked baffling you know we have to think that it was Paul McCartney's doing because it sounds like a Paul McCartney song it really does it sounds like a song that he would have happily written himself originally my guess is they'd seen the movie and Paul had practiced the chords at home and knew it and so he suggested to the boys and they threw it off (laughs) did the conversation between the pop charts and musical theatre completely end with the British invasion not completely, thank goodness. Um, we still had a few big hit shows like Hello, Dolly, with a hit song by Louis Armstrong that you mentioned before. And uh, Jerry Herman also wrote Mame. And uh, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass recorded the theme song and had a minor hit with that. And, you know, one of my favorites, Edie Gourmet, recorded uh, the big ballad from Mame, If You Walked Into My Life, before the show had even opened as a way of promoting the show. And it became a huge hit for her. And it sounded very much like it did in the show. It wasn't really reinterpreted. It was just not the star of the show, Angela Lansbury singing. It was a pop star, Edie Gourmet. Did he need a lighter touch? Was I soft or was I tough? Did I give enough? Did I give too much? This evening, musical theatre aficionado Chad Jones is on hand. We're exploring the fascinating world of show tune crossovers. Is it fair to say that starting in the 1960s and going forwards for maybe a couple of decades, rock music had a much greater influence on musicals than musicals had on the pop charts? Oh, definitely. I mean, you would think that rock music would have had more influence on Broadway than it actually did between Hair and then Jesus Christ Superstar and then, you know, think about the next rock musical. Um, It didn't happen for a long time. I mean, the Who's Tommy came much later. I mean, the, the album was out uh, in the, I guess, late 60s, early 70s, but the musical version that actually played on Broadway didn't come until you know, the 90s. I mean, it's kind of what took so long for that particular transition to happen. Broadway was very, very slow to react and to adapt to rock and pop music. And in the meantime, popular song just kind of forgot about Broadway. It's very sad. <laughs> so what kinds of show tunes made it into the pop charts in the mid to late 1960s of the few that, that did manage to get there? You know, and it, it never completely goes away. It's always so interesting to me. You can always find uh, someone carrying the banner. Um, there's some crazy stuff out there if you look for it. Um, Cher, in one of her very early solo efforts, um, recorded Old Man River from Old Man River Showboat yeah um, and uh, it's absolutely she was you know not Cher as we know her now um, but it was still strange for this young 
um, emerging singer to record a song sung by an African-American man working the shores of the Mississippi River, you know, in the 19th century. It's a very strange recording, and I don't know what was going through their minds. Of course, Sonny Bono, her husband at the time, produced it, and maybe they were making their stand for civil rights. I don't know. Maybe they were just in love with it because their grandmothers wanted to hear it. I don't know, but it is it is an oddity. It's a strange choice, and, and we'll hear the recording in a second. And then there was also what you were talking about earlier, about hair being a big thing around there. Big too. thing, and, and you would think that uh, a radio-ready rock musical like Hair would have generated more hits than it actually did. The biggest one was by The Fifth Dimension, which very far removed from Broadway, um, did a medley of uh, Let the Sun Shine and Aquarius. Aquarius. Yeah. And a uh, big hit. And, you know, it's if people know those songs, it generally is because of that version of it, because that's the one that they heard on the radio every time they turned around. Well, let's hear from Cher and Hair now. two show tune crossovers from the 1960s. The first track was a rather bizarre early recording by Cher of Old Man River, which comes from the 1927 musical Showboat by Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein. The track is featured from the artist's 1966 album The Sunny Side of Cher. And then we heard the Fifth Dimension's 1969 hit version of Aquarius and Let the Sunshine In from the 1967 musical Hair, the first commercially successful marriage of rock and show tunes. The book and lyrics for Hair were written by James Rado and Jerome Ragney, and the music was composed by Galt McDermott. With me in the studio for a conversation about the checkered fortunes of show tunes in the pop music world is performing arts writer Chad Jones. So if the 1960s weren't music history's most exciting time for show tune crossovers, what were the 1970s and 80s like, Chad? Did these decades yield any noteworthy pop hits that originated on the musical theatre stage? Oh, it was a wasteland. No, not completely. As I said, there was always someone carrying a banner and every once in a while an actual show tune would rear its head on the top 40. Um, But very, very rarely. I mean, this was the era of the singer-songwriter. And then that quickly merged into the age of disco. So you have, you know, God lover Ethel Merman creating a disco album of all of her old 
show tune hits every song everything's coming up roses with a disco beat you know it just wow. uh, yeah um and and we had you know one of the most popular movie musicals of all time um greece spawning hit after hit after hit in the late 70s and um, almost all of the hits were not from the show itself but added for the movie Oh, of course, the Bee Gees numbers weren't in the Bee Gees wrote musical. the title song, right. Grease, and John Farrar wrote, wrote Hopelessly Devoted to You for Olivia Newton-John, and You're the One That I Want was added for the movie. Um, yeah, it's interesting. When I went to see Grease on stage fairly recently, I remember being quite disappointed that my favorite songs weren't actually in the musical. I know, but they've had to add them in for some productions because people expect to hear them now because that to them is the show. Right. And what about Andrew Lloyd Webber? Yes, this is when Andrew reared his head for the first time. Um, Jesus Christ Superstar was a big hit on both sides of the Atlantic and even was a successful film. And it generated uh, some interesting music that popular music took note of. Um, Primarily Yvonne Elliman um, singing I Don't Know How to Love Him um, was a hit, although... Um, it was nice to have an original cast member singing a song on the radio, but Helen Reddy, the voice from Australia, had a bigger hit with the same song. But then you had certain artists like, for example, Tom Waits, who mm. you know came out with, with the song Somewhere, right, which was from West Side Story. I right. mean, what did his fans make of that little project? I, you know, I, I couldn't say at the time. I was, you know, merely a toddler. <clears throat> but... Uh, he he delivers an incredibly sincere version of Somewhere and not a shred of irony in it, God bless him. And I don't know why he did it um, or what his producers or his record label <laughs> thought, uh, but I'm so grateful to him that he did it. And I think it's an extraordinary recording. Right. That's from 1978, right? right? Blue Valentine. Okay, but then we get into the 80s, which seems to be a complete wash for musical theatre songs um, succeeding in the pop charts. Was it that musicals in the period weren't very good, or was a lot of great stage material just being ignored by pop singers? It was being ignored, I think. I mean, when you think about 80s music, you think about, you know, drum machines and electric keyboards and big hair. Um, You don't think about sincerity, you don't think about drama. Um, you certainly don't think about belting. Well, I can't quite bring myself to play any tracks from the 80s Disney movies that were another sort of source of, of yeah. popular crossover that's, material that's during what the period. The that's what happened. Broadway, the hit Broadway song was co-opted by Disney animated films, and they were so smart about it. They were played very uh, straightforward in the movie, sung by the characters in traditional arrangements, but they got pop stars to record versions of them, like um, Beauty and the Beast with um, Celine Dion and Peebo Bryson, is that his name? Uh, And huge hits. Yeah. Well, at least I suppose that's one way of getting musical theatre-esque material out there, but it's completely different because these things weren't really on the stage. But I think we should stick for the music we're going to play now to the 70s, which seems to be an era where at least there were some interesting things going on, we'll hear snippets from Yvonne Elliman's take on I Don't Know How to Love Him from Jesus Christ Superstar, The Three Degrees with What I Did for Love from A Chorus Line, and last but not least, Tom Waits' unmistakable version of Somewhere from West Side Story. Yes, really true. 
to Voicebox on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco. On tonight's show, musical theatre writer Chad Jones is with me in the studio for a chat about show tune crossovers into the pop charts. We've been talking about the 1970s and 80s and just heard snippets of musical numbers from Jesus Christ Superstar, A Chorus Line and West Side Story, as interpreted respectively by Yvonne Elliman, The Three Degrees and Tom Waits. Chad, as you've noticed, the final decades of the last century weren't particularly remarkable from the point of view of pop artists mining the rich repertoire of musical theatre for hit material. Why is it that the rock revolution that began with hair never quite caught fire on the pop charts? I am afraid that the Broadway version of rock and roll was never legitimate enough for top 40. Somehow it just never made the grade. It was somehow watered down. The The show tune equivalent of rock and roll was not really rock and roll. And I, I think to agree, a degree that's true. Even when, you know, rock returned in a big way um, in 96 with Rent, uh, people didn't, um, in the pop world, didn't care. Um, very much. They may have gone to see it and they may have liked it, but they didn't think, oh, now there's a song I need to record on my next album. Or, oh, that's a potential hit single. Um, the producers of Rent itself tried very hard to capitalize on the success of the show and get airplay, which they didn't get, even though they had the original cast record the the main song from the show, Seasons of Love, with Stevie Wonder. You know, they were essentially trying to buy their way with star power onto the top ten, and it didn't work. Didn't work. Hmm. But in more recent years, it seems that things have started to get interesting again. Singers today just seem, don't seem ready to give up on old show tunes, do no, they? No, thank goodness. Um, once again, you know, we we find uh, there's a, a breed of. I, I don't know what to call them exactly. Um, they're not exactly jazz. They're not exactly pop. Um, but they're kind of middle of the road, somewhat easy listening crooner types. You know, the the new version of a Bobby Darren or a Peggy Lee. Um, people like Diana Krall and Michael Bublé and Harry Connick Jr. who continually um, mine the Great American Songbook and record a lot of show tunes and, and reinterpret a lot of show tunes. And it's it's interesting to hear their take on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this whole idea of reinterpretations of interpretations that yeah. we've been talking about yeah, too. Yeah, I get a little weary of that. Michael Bublé is guilty of that, I have to say. When he records Mac the Knife, he doesn't 
reinterpret Mac the Knife. He reinterprets Bobby Darren's Mac the Knife. So it's essentially just doing the same thing over again. And I don't understand the point of that. There's you so mean many. He other sounds things. like Bobby Darren. He does. He uses the same arrangement. It's that same swinging idea that Darren and his producer had. But Bublé and his producer just said, "Oh, let's do the Bobby Darren version." Well, let's talk now about this young British singer by the name of Jamie Cullum. He's sort of interesting, isn't he? He's very interesting. He he was, you know, a, a wonderkind when he burst onto the scene. He was just a teenager at the time when he started getting noticed. He he plays a mean jazz piano, and he was a singer, and he was cocky and confident, and uh, he had a, a rock and roll vibe that he brought to this sort of jazz standards world. And he recorded a, several different show tunes that were very interesting and original. So he wasn't just reinterpreting a reinterpretation. He was creating something new out of old show tunes. Well, let's hear now from Jamie Cullum. Here's the young British jazz singer's raunchy and radical retake on I Could Have Danced All Night from My Fair Lady. I could have danced all night I could have danced all night still have made for more I could have spread my wings and done a, a thousand things I never ever done before the track originally comes from the 1956 musical My Fair Lady. Chad, I wonder what the musical's authors, Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe, would have made of hearing a man sing this song. Yeah, it is curious. I have a feeling he's not really talking about dancing when he sings the song. But I'd like to think that they would be happy that another generation was hearing their work. I mean, it's a great version of it. I would like to think they'd be open to reinterpretation. Yeah, it's just so very different. It's it's nothing like... I mean, you have no idea when you hear those opening bars that you're going to be hearing that song. It's really just so radical and and uh, and fun because right. of that. And that's what it takes. I think that's that's what we're missing is singers who really want to put their own stamp on some of these great songs and make people surprised to learn that this great track that they're grooving to is, in fact, a show tune. I have to say that I love the way in which pop artists have started to get a little bit creative with old Broadway chestnuts again, even if doing so isn't a common occurrence. One thing that's coming up these days is the embedding of snippets from old show tunes into contemporary pop songs rather than artists covering old songs from the stage. Um, examples are the rapper Jay-Z's use of It's a Hard Knock Life from the musical Annie in his hit song Hard Knock Life Ghetto Anthem from 1998 and pop singer Gwen Stefani's use of The Lonely Goat Herd from The Sound of Music in her 2006 hit Wind It Up. Chad, why are artists incorporating samples of old show tunes into their songs rather than simply doing covers of them these days? Well, I think in the case of, of Jay-Z, he's a master sampler, and I think he is just, and he has producers, I don't know who all makes these selections, they're just getting creative about where they're searching for samples. And this was a particularly interesting one because it's so ironic that, you know, that Annie, the whitest, sweetest, sunshiniest musical of them all, is now forever associated with um, you know an explicit lyrics hip hop rap 
tune. Um, and I know that Jay-Z is a smart man and he fully intended all of that irony in every note of the sample. I mean, he's singing along with all these little orphan girls in mm-hmm. his rap song. Mm-hmm. Do you think that most contemporary pop singers have the chops to sing musical numbers effectively? You know, whether they do or not, they have their own set of chops. And the part of what makes a show tune cover work is that it matches the personality, the vibe of a singer. So if they don't have the big Everything's Coming Up Roses belt, then find a way that they can sing it, bring their own thing to it without having to you know, blow the roof off. I want to hear that. I want to hear what people do to put their own stamp on great old songs. So I think there's evidently a, a lot of irony in the way that people like Jay-Z and Gwen Stefani use these old songs. Um, do you think that they should take the source material more seriously? No, I'm just happy they're taking the source material at all, um, to be honest. But, you know, Gwen Stefani is a huge Sound of Music fan and she's gushed and gushed and gushed about it so you know I feel like hers comes from a at least a loving place to begin with but she's having fun with it and I fully support that and you know I even give props to Jay-Z for shining the spotlight on Annie a show that has no threat of ever disappearing because it's done every 10 minutes in every regional theater in every part of the country but you know let's let's hear it in a different way that's what I want okay and why do you think people have responded so warmly to the unpredictable marriage of show tune and rap that the hip-hop artist Jay-Z gave us with this Annie sample and Gwen Stefani's use of the lonely goat herd in her hit because I think they do it well they do it in a way that doesn't compromise who they are it brings in something a little bit more interesting maybe than what they have to offer on that particular number uh it has a little more depth to it there's something more there if you care to find out about it i mean people listening to wind it up or hard knock life may have no knowledge that there's a show tune involved and they certainly may not care but that's okay because they're grooving to rogers and hammerstein even if they don't know it this is voice box on kalw 91.7 fm Some of the hottest cars New Yorkers ever seen For dropping some of the hottest verses rappers ever heard From the dope spot with the smoke block Clinging the murder scene You know me well from nightmares of a lonely cell My only hell But since when y'all know me to fail Nah, we all with the rubber grips 
You're listening to KALW's Voice Box. Tonight, musical theatre expert Chad Jones is with me for a discussion about the trajectory of musical theatre numbers in the pop music world. We just heard two examples of pop singers who've incorporated old musical theatre chestnuts into their tracks with great commercial success. First up was Gwen Stefani with Wind It Up, which includes references to the lonely goat herd from the 1959 musical The Sound of Music. And then we heard Jay-Z's use of It's a Hard Knock Life from the 1977 show Annie in his Hard Knock Life ghetto anthem. Do you think there are particular show tunes that lend themselves more readily to pop chart adaptation than others, Chad? I think probably so. Um, Jerry Herman, Irving Berlin, the Gershwins, they were writing classical, I mean, not classic, they're classic songs, pop songs that when you lifted them out of a show, still sounded like great songs. If you had a big band playing them or an orchestra, they didn't necessarily sound like show tunes. Whereas Stephen Sondheim's songs sound like Stephen Sondheim songs, whether they're on stage or off. I mean, he's really only had one crossover hit in his whole distinguished career, uh, and that's Send in the Clowns. Um, You know, I, I would love for someone to find a way to bring Sondheim to the top 40, but I just don't think that's going to happen. So looking back over history, are there any characteristics that many of the, su- the successful crossover songs share? You know, I think it's it's something that I've been saying, and it's it's when the personality of the singer and the inventiveness of the arrangement merge in such a way that it reinvents the song. Um, you know, I think of, of Mac the Knife as the pinnacle of that collaboration. And uh, there's no reason that creative producers and artists today shouldn't be mining these incredible songs, many of which, you know, people of these gen- last few generations haven't ever heard. So, you know, it's a, a wild card. You can do whatever you want with them. So with a few notable exceptions, it does seem like the pop world of the day may have mostly disowned Broadway. But it's curious that Broadway has embraced the pop world so fervently in recent years. Chad, what does the popularity of jukebox musicals like Jersey Boys and Mamma Mia and American Idiot say about the relationship between show tunes and the pop charts? Well, I guess Broadway just will not be ignored. So seeing the writing on that particular wall, knowing that the uh, fickle American public may not be all that interested in the musicals that Broadway has to offer, uh, Broadway has turned to popular music to entice them back. And in a few cases, it's worked extraordinarily well. I'm thinking of Jersey Boys. Uh, I'm thinking of Mamma Mia, certainly. That's a hit that shows no signs of dying away anytime soon. Same with Jersey Boys, really. Um, More recently, we have American Idiot um, with the songs of Green Day. Uh, Although, who can say how long that's going to last? But it certainly has put real rock music on the Broadway stage in a significant way in the 21st century. So it's this sort of, if you can't beat them, join them. Absolutely. (laughs) Broadway will do whatever it takes to appear hip and vital. So how likely is it for Broadway to render another top 10 hit anytime soon? I honestly don't expect it in my lifetime. But a hit song today is so different now because everybody's just downloading. I mean, the top 10 doesn't mean what it used to mean because now it's the top 10 downloads. And if we're going to go 
a judge on that basis, then the songs from the TV show Glee are released every week and a bunch of them are thrown into the top 10. So are those hits? I don't know. I haven't heard them on the radio, but I suppose you could call them hits. So Glee is an interesting case, actually, because the TV show includes quite a lot of material a lot ripped of... from Broadway. What would you say is Glee's contribution to raising awareness about the great songs of the musical theatre stage? Well, I think if there was ever going to be uh, a hit show tune, again, it would take something along the lines of a Glee to put it out there in front of the American public and make them say, oh, yeah, I like that song. Uh, and I think that is happening with Glee. I mean, they are mining the American songbook and finding some obscure... They, they just, on a recent episode, there was a duet with Carol Burnett, no less, of... Um, uh, the song Ohio from Leonard Bernstein's Wonderful Town. I mean, that's not a song you hear at a karaoke bar on a Saturday night, uh, but there it was on one of the most popular shows on television. But it's making show tunes hip and cool and vital again. And in many cases, it's mashing them up with current pop songs or even making them sound like current pop songs. So you can't tell the difference. Well, we're coming up on 11 o'clock and it's time for us to say goodnight. I'd like to say a huge thank you to my marvellous guest, the one and only Chad Jones, for coming into the studio tonight. It's been so much fun chatting with you about the fortunes of show tunes in the pop world, Chad. Oh, thank you, Chloe. I love being here and talking about one of my favourite things. You can keep up with Chad by visiting his theatre blog at www.theatredogs.net, where he often writes about musical theatre. Voicebox is produced at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. The series producer is Seth Samuel and the web editor is Victoria Lim. Voicebox is made possible by support from our listeners. To find out how you can become more involved with Voicebox, including how to make a tax-deductible donation to support the project, please visit our website at www.voicebox-media.org. On next week's show, composer, writer and performer Brian Rosen will join me in the studio for a discussion about ornamentation in vocal music. We'll explore some of the ways in which singers and composers adorn melodies and the factors that separate memorable embellishments from forgettable ones. Do join us next week on Friday from 10 to 11pm here on KALW. I'll play us out with a good example of how the TV series Glee is reinventing musical theatre music for the contemporary pop charts. Here's the Glee mashup of Singing in the Rain, a 1929 song used in countless movies and the basis for a 1983 stage adaptation, which features Umbrella, a 2007 hit for Rihanna and Jay-Z. Have a song for a week. Sing.